Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Patrick Stewart in times of Scott Bakula. And we will open up that little clue as the show goes on. Hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. We're going to continue our series looking at the three A's. You know what those are, affability, availability, and ability. We talked a little bit about availability, and we're going to continue our series on looking at the word ability today. Uh, That's going to be good, but even better is going to be the person that we're interviewing today. Dr. Scott Sigmund, you've seen him on LinkedIn, some other social media outlets, the opioid sparing surgeon. He has a lot of cool things to share with us, so you're going to want to hang around for that. So I am quite the history buff, and one show that I have particularly enjoyed lately is Barkskins. It's on Hulu, and it's a fictional story, but it revolves around some very real things that happened back in the 1690s in what is now Quebec, but at the time it was New France, and it details the tensions between the English, the French, and the Iroquois, and other tribes, and just fascinating stuff and some great acting. My favorite character in it is Claude Trepani, uh, played by David Thewlis. He looks just like a bass player from an 80s band for some reason to me. Uh, And everything he says just sounds so profound. And one thing that he said last week was so good. He was referring to the law of two. You know, with light, there is dark, and with good, there is evil, and just kind of the duality of a lot of things. And, And I thought it would be appropriate to kind of Uh, launch off of that, since we're talking about ability, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, and this is not going to be a fun word, but we're going to make it good and we're going to make it very helpful. We're going to talk about inability. So you do this job long enough, and I know we love to talk about the success aspect of this job, right? I crushed it, getting stuff done. But at the same time, the law of duality, the law of two, so to speak, we will have to face at some point the F word. And what is that? Well, that would be what we perceive to be failure, inability to get something done. And what do we do with that? So don't go all Debbie Downer on me right now, because this is going to be good. This is absolutely going to be good. I got a call from a dear friend of mine the other day. Uh, and I got to act as a coach. He calls me every now and then. And you know what? As an aside, we all need a coach in our life. We need somebody whose voice we trust that knows us, knows who we really are, that can speak truth into our lives, especially when we're struggling or things aren't going quite the way we want it to. Uh, and we know that they have our best interest at heart. Those people are hard to find. We have to seek them out and have them on our speed dial. Agreed? So my friend was walking me through a recent situation he had with a surgeon, and he felt like he had done this, did that, did all the right things, and it didn't go right. The surgeon ended up going with another uh, company, and he was just trying to do an after-action report, a debrief, a CSI forensic analysis of the sale, and was looking for an outside opinion. What did I do? What did I do wrong? What did I do right? So, you know, had him sit on the psychiatrist's couch, so to speak, and we went through everything together. So after talking to my friend for 15 minutes and concluding our forensic analysis, I came to the conclusion, and you know, I I have such a relationship with this particular guy that if he did something wrong, I would tell him, and he would know that I still had his best interest at heart. You know, it's all about getting better, learning from our mistakes, and What can we do better for the next time? Why did our customers say no? Sometimes we can learn from that. So then that will help us get them to a yes later on. So sometimes these no's are good. They're they're teachable moments. But in this situation, I didn't feel like that was the case at all, that he did everything right, but it still didn't go his way. Now, you would look at that and go, all contraire, you know, Napoleon Hill says that we are the master of our own destiny. So if that destiny gets subverted somehow... We clearly did something wrong, right? Well, in situations like this, I defer to someone that I think has greater standing 
than Napoleon Hill. One would say universal standing, a decorated captain who's been all around this galaxy. One could even say that he is boldly gone where no man has gone before. So let's listen to what he has to say and pick it up on the other side. It is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. Sage wisdom there from the mouth of Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Great stuff. It is possible to make no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. I actually got to share that with my friend. And the reason why this stuff gets so relevant in this job, and again, I have to remind you and remind me that we need that coach in our life to help us dissect when it's really us or when we could have done some something better. I mean, there's no true duality in this stuff. It's not a zero or a one. Maybe you did a lot of things right, but maybe there was a few things you didn't do right, and that's what you want to learn from. So we do need people to help us parse through these things. Again, people that we trust and that can give us the ugly truth and not a beautiful lie and just tell us how wonderful we are, right? I don't get a lot of benefit sometimes from people that... Uh, that think the best of me about everything, every now and then I really need to hear, what did you not do? We want to get better. This is all about getting better. Well, in this scenario that we're talking about, though, you didn't make any mistakes, and it still went sideways. There's a huge teachable moment here. So let's say you've done your due diligence, and you realize there was external factors that you had no control over that led to your demise, And I'm kind of being strong there. I don't mean your real demise, but you know, some situation just didn't go right. I will use as an extreme. There is a rep out there, and I won't say who he is, but I have followed his career, and I have learned so much watching him uh, and actually modeled some of the things I do based upon him. He went with a company and took all this business with them, and everything just totally went his way, and within a year and a half... Everything just went completely sideways because of a contract situation. And I thought to myself, you know, he did the same thing. He didn't do anything different. He was doing all the right things, but it just didn't go right in the end. Um, I contend that 90% of what we deal with in life is out of our control, but that doesn't stop us from working on the 10%, right? So in this scenario... He was upended by things that were completely not in his control. So let's dial it back a little bit, and let's say we're not talking about you being thrown out of account, but just something like my friend went through. You showed something, you did all the right things, you tried to treat people right, and it still didn't go your way. The real problem here is we have a tendency, especially those of us who self-loathe, and I put myself in that category, uh, and I work with some surgeons that talk about that all the time. Uh, we have to fight that part of us that is so critical of ourselves because we end up navel-gazing. And we have said over and over and over on this series that selling is helping and that it's all about the other person. And it has to be that way the moment we walk in the OR until the moment we head home. And then we start it all over again, Right. So we have to make it about the other person. And if we live in the, oh, gosh, I blew it, I don't have any business doing this job uh, aspect that can come on us after situations like this. And my friend was even saying that, you know, I just don't feel like I can close a deal. And and that's not really what happened in this situation. It had nothing to do with his closing ability. But we can easily find ourselves on that road, can't we? And totally have us have ourselves convinced that we need to be selling hot dogs in front of Lowe's on the weekends or something, because uh, we're clearly not talented enough to do this job. So give yourself 24 hours of self-loathing and then get off the couch, get out there, look for creative ways to bring value and content to your customers in an optimistic and positive way. And know that there's hope. There's always hope in medical device because this is a marathon. It's not a 5K. You run it like a 5K, it usually gets you in trouble. So run it like a marathon and know that you might have gotten a no today, but you know what? Next week is a new week. Next month is a new month. It might even be next year. But there's always hope. My friend that I was speaking of earlier has gone on to be very successful within his sphere 
even having law, even after having lost in such a large way. So there is always hope. Always remember that as long as you live in a world full of individuals, they are going to have minds of their own and you cannot control them. If you can't control your spouse and everybody that's been married knows this deal, right? Because we've all tried it at least once. You can't do it. And in fact, much like the Star Trek episode where they were stuck in this trap and the more engine power they gave, the ship just got even more mired down. And that's so true of life, isn't it? The more you try to control people, it just makes it worse. And then you set yourself up for defeat and angst because I couldn't get it done. Well, you know what? You just had to release it a little bit. Do your best job. And then if it doesn't work out, move on positively, optimistically, onto the next project, and just continue to do your best and learn as we move along this path. Part of that path for me has been social media and just learning what I can from the wonderful surgeons around this country that that participate in that and asking them questions and getting to know them. And that has just been a phenomenal uh, thing for me to help me get better and seeing what other reps are doing and how they're doing it and how they communicate. And uh, I am so honored to have Dr. Scott Sigmund on board today. He's just done so many cool things. And uh, just from a marketing perspective of getting his message out to the world of, hey, this is who I am and this is what I do and this is how I do it. And just a, a, a case study and what to do. And and I love his content on LinkedIn and other platforms of what he's doing in the, the laser space, what he's doing in the opioid sparing space, and just a really cool cat. So welcome to the show, Dr. Scott Sigmund. Appreciate you having me on. It's awesome. I'm really uh, thankful to have you on the show. Uh, I know you're going to appreciate the fact that I'm uh, conducting this interview utilizing an opioid sparing technique. Uh, of course you are. I've recently crafted that. So um, I, I have so enjoyed your content on social media. Uh, I look forward to talking to you about that, your passion for opioid sparing techniques, uh, your ortho laser centers. But, um, you know, I could just go on and on. But first, I want to go back. I'd like to hear, and I know my audience would be interested in hearing, what got you into medicine in the first place and, and why orthopedics? Yeah, it's a, that's actually a really good question. I, I was in 10th grade, of all things. Uh, I was a football player and a lacrosse player. And uh, there were about, for for whatever reason, about three or four orthopedic surgeons that lived in the area. And they're all, all their kids went to school with me. It's a public school. It wasn't a private school, but just by serendipity, that's how it was. And uh I was really good in science and math. My father was a chemical engineer from MIT. I knew I didn't want to be a geek, geek it out. And the sports thing was really cool to me. And, and they really looked like they were they were doing well. And one of them in particular, a guy named Larry Becker, was a lacrosse player at Hopkins and went on to be the sports medicine orthopedic surgeon in Baltimore. And I went to high school with his kids. And I'm like, this seems really cool. And I think that's what I want to do. My uh, my son was a lacrosse player, and he was a goalie. His nickname was Contusion. Uh, that was, <laughs> I, I, as a parent, that was the hardest thing watching his shins just get nailed. What what uh, what position did you play? I was a I was a center midi, and uh, so I you know, played in, in high school. Wound up being the captain of the football and lacrosse team, and did real well. And wound up going off to Tufts University, where I was recruited to play both football and lacrosse. And uh, my football career lasted for approximately four days when they handed me the thousand page playbook. Uh, and I'm like, I know I'm here specifically to get into medical school and I'm going to definitely play lacrosse because the lacrosse players look to be more about my size than the football players do. <laughs> right. And I basically, I turned in my playbook and, and that was it for football for me. But I did, I did play uh, lacrosse at Tufts and, and that was a, a, a lot of fun as well. So you went to medical school, sports fellowship at Curlin Job, and that's a prestigious uh, fellowship, no doubt. A good experience. Any uh, good campfire stories from your uh, from your training there? Oh, that was the best. You know, we uh, it was it was too it was too funny. Bill Levine, who's the chairman of Orthopedics at Columbia, and I were co-chief residents together. And Bill also applied to Curlin Job, and at the end of the day, decided he wanted to be more of a shoulder guy. So he wound up taking the Columbia fellowship which opened up the door for me to go to Curl and Job because they weren't going to take two of us. And uh, it, it has basically been, um, it's been a professional 
uh, get out of jail free card. I, that's probably a bad way to put it, but it's just been a professional door opener since since day one. I mean, no matter what you say, you went to Curl and Job, and, and people appreciate that you've got great training. And the timing out there was amazing. I mean, I was working with superstar, you know, orthopedic surgeons. Neil Elitraj was four years in. Uh, and you know, Dr. Job was still operating. Neil Kavitney and and uh, Taboni, just these sort of really iconic names. And Steve Lombardo. We were taking care of the Lakers and the Dodgers and the Angels and the Mighty Ducks. I mean, it was just phenomenal. I operated on three NFL quarterbacks while I was out there, and it's just an experience that I'll always have with me, and has really helped me to be who I am today. So tell me about your practice. Uh, you haven't really moved around a lot. I, I'm assuming you've been working in basically the same place for the last 20 or so years. Yeah, almost 25 years now. I sort of uh, just basically, uh, my wife at the time was from this area, and uh, we decided to uh, to sort of stay in the Boston area. And uh, uh, the job found me. My my two partners, Sam Gerber and Eric Holstein, asked me to join them. I was the third person in, and it's just been it's been great. I mean, we practice just north of Boston. It's a small. It's a a, you know, it's a community north of Boston. And I always joke, you know, yeah, I'm just a, I'm just a community surgeon, you know, working in a small town just north of Boston, but we're, you know, we do amazing work and we've got 11 partners now and we have, you know, just a ter- terrific private practice with a complete multi-specialty group. Everybody's doing great work and it's a pleasure to be partners with them. You've done a phenomenal job on um, social media. It's just branding your practice and making the whole opioid sparing um, uh, surgery, uh, just bringing that out in the forefront. I, I read about, uh, I read an article today about the pandemic actually making the opioid crisis worse. Uh, I've just wanted to ask what, what inspired you to make this a pillar of your practice and, and have you uh, been satisfied with the results so far? Yeah, no, I really appreciate the recognition there. Opioid sparing surgery has really become my passion practice. I've you know, become well-known for, you know, hashtag follow the fro and opioid sparing and all of that. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, it's just become who I am. And, you know, all started because we just, it, it was just, it was not, it wasn't easy to practice orthopedic surgery, you know, 10 years ago with the way in which we were taught on how you manage pain. And that was, you're going to use opioids. They're inexpensive, right? They're not very addictive. But the, the truth is, it's the exact opposite. They're incredibly addictive and they're very expensive to society, much less the loss of life. So it was it was my partner, Dave Perbilla, who's, who's a, a four-year letterman football and baseball at Yale, smart dude. And he likes to read the, the journal, so I don't have to. And one day he comes up to me, he's like, Siggy, you know, have you heard about this thing called Xperel? And I'm like, no, but you know, what's it all about? And we, we started looking at it and we said, well, let's give it a try. And next thing you know, you know, our patients were like not needing medication. They were doing incredibly well. And it just sort of came to the forefront. And then this, the light went off in my brain. And I was like, you know something, these people that are on opioids that keep calling for medication and refills, they're actually not bad people. I mean, that was, well, don't put them on the no pain list. They're, they're, they're losers. They can't keep control of things. But you know, unfortunately, the addiction of opioids, it chooses you. You don't choose it. If you're the if you're that percentage of patient that's going to get addicted, you, you really don't have any control over it. So they weren't bad people. They were just, unfortunately, given narcotics and they got addicted. And so once that light went off for me, I really recognized how important it was to try and message and change the paradigm of post-operative pain management in particular. And I got to tell you, it wasn't easy, you know, Kev, uh, early on. We weren't getting a lot of people in the room and people were just like, I don't, what are you talking about? Give them 60 pills. I'm not on call this weekend and I don't want my partners being called. So, you know, that's what we were doing. That's what we were taught. And, uh, but fortunately now we've got, you know, a cadre of opioid sparing superheroes is what I like to call them across the country that have adopted this principle and they're teaching now and the residents are now getting taught this process as well. So it's really, it's really changed the way in which we clinically practice. So I'm, I'm really proud to have been able to, to, to be a part of that. I mean, you know, I can only see 60 patients, 70 patients in a day, but the, the number of patients that I think I have positively affected in, the, affected in their lives by, by teaching and training doctors on these methods has been fantastic. So I'm really very proud of that process. So I'm a patient on your table. You're doing my knee. Walk me through your preference card. What are you doing that's going to help me get out of there without a single pill? Okay. So you want to do a total knee? You want to do an ACL? What do you What do you want me to do? Let's, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do a total knee. Okay, let's do a total knee. So it starts actually 
you know, day one when we sign you up. And, and the most important thing is patient communication, is talking to your patient about what your expectations are for pain management as well as theirs. They're always super happy to know that you care about them and that there is a plan because everybody knows somebody that's addicted to opioids. So patient communication is number one. And then we talk about the process. What we do now is we do IOVERA, which is a, a cryoaxidemesis device that we use to freeze the anterior femoral cutaneous nerves and the infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve. We usually do that about four or five days prior to surgery. And that numbs up the cutaneous nerves for up to three months. So when they're going through their rehab to regain range of motion, there's much less pain and improved function. Then at the time of the surgery, we do our cocktail, which is usually a spinal at the time. And then we'll provide them Celebrex, uh, which is an anti-inflammatory, as well as IV Tylenol. Uh, and then we will do a liposomal bupivacaine or Expirel block, a uh, field block done at the time of the surgery, as, at the time we're closing. Um, I will actually also use um, Arista, which is a, a sort of a potato starch hemostasis type thing to try and reduce hematoma to the wound, which also helps to reduce pain potentially. And then uh, we provide them a very, you know, a, a number of short-acting narcotic pills. We're not we're not cruel and unusual. You know, we'll provide ten pills, and we ask them to count each one, and we then provide them a multimodal approach. We we are right for a prescription of Tylenol, for example. It's not optional. It's it's mandatory. Tylenol is a great pain reliever, so we write an actual prescription, 1,000 milligrams every eight hours. We provide meloxicam 15 once a day because it's an anti-inflammatory that doesn't require prior authorization. And then we give them the short-acting you know, pain pills as well. And we're, we're going to try and really push the envelope now, especially post-COVID, and trying to get as many of our total knee replacements home uh, to, to sort of avoid the hospital setting, to avoid the re the hospital, I'm sorry, the rehab hospital setting completely, if you can. Uh, so we're pushing the envelope now. We're up to about 30 or 40% as outpatient, and we hope to get that number up even higher as the year goes on. Yeah, the outpatient thing is a real big push right now. I think COVID is kind of forcing it through, given the, the shutdown that I'm seeing here, even locally on elective cases. What's been your experience with the ASC versus the hospital setting, and and how has COVID uh, affected you guys up there? Yeah, so we're there was an ASC that I was a part of that's a COVID-free ASC that's up in New Hampshire. They opened up a little early, and so the, all the physicians and staff are getting COVID tested as well as the patients. And uh, for the right patient, you know, outpatient total knee replacement is a great operation. I mean. You're mobile. We're not doing femoral nerve blocks. There's no blockade of the motor function. They don't need a knee immobilizer. They can get up and walk. We clear them on stairs. We put them in the car and we have them go home. And that experience actually has been quite good. Even at the main hospital where we're at right now, I'm actually doing outpatient surgery through the main hospital as well, where the right candidate will get a little bit of physical therapy right before the time of discharge and they'll go home instead of spending the night. I can tell you, for the elderly patients that are going to need, you know, that 85-year-old woman with multiple comorbidities who's not going to be able to go home, uh, who's going to wind up having to go to a rehab, well, I'm just telling them we're not going to do your knee replacement right now. We'll give you alternative treatments. We're not going to keep you in pain, but we're going to wait until until we get a little better control, get a vaccine, and and then we'll start getting those patients that are going to need to be done and, and, and have extra time at the hospital. Does Iovera fit into that uh, delay of game strategy? Yeah, no, we use IOVERA quite routinely. You know, the sort of my go-to uh, uh, things at this point. We obviously we, we can talk about laser a little bit, but we use IOVERA, and we're getting you know solid three three months, three to four months worth of pain relief for a patient with osteoarthritis that is looking to avoid surgery. We also use Zoretta uh, from Flexion Therapeutics, which is a long-acting corticosteroid, which is also providing pain relief for upwards of three months for our patients. So we're looking for you know, longer term solutions to try and keep patients out of the office if we can to minimize their exposure to other patients. Well, thanks for uh, that segue into what was going to be my next question. I want to talk about ortho laser. I want to find out from you, and I know my audience wants to know what exactly is an MLS M8 laser and how does that affect inflammation, not only in the joint space, but I also want to hear about the progress on uh, COVID patients. That that story came out. I read about it. And it was fascinating to me. So so walk me through. Number one, how did you come up with this? Uh, what what inspired you? And and where are you now with all of it? 
Yeah, you've done your homework, Kevin. Nice work. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's what you're supposed to do as a fellow podcaster. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it was the opioid sparing thing. You know, I get approached all the time by companies that have alternative treatment options. And the laser people came to me. It was Ryan Mooney, who's now my partner in OrthoLaser, uh, came to me and brought, at the time, it was the M6 laser. And we trialed it on myself and a bunch of the patients in my office. And I was actually very quickly impressed by the, the relief that patients were getting. So, I then sort of went all in and decided to, to try and figure this out because we, we don't know anything about laser in America. We're not taught it. It's not a medical school. But actually, if you really look around the world, laser is, is widely accepted as an alternative treatment option. Uh, and, and, and if you really look deeply, just about every major medical school in the U.S. is doing some sort of a laser project uh, on some sort of aspect of medicine. So I went out to Florence, Italy, and I met with Monica Monici, who's a professor of cellular biology, one of the leading authorities. Went over a few times and really dove in deep on the science. I mean, we could spend an hour just on the science, but what's interesting about the MLS M8 laser is that it's a pulse laser, which is really important. It's got the right wavelengths, which is also really important. With laser, you have to have the appropriate wavelengths to get depth of penetration to where orthopedic problems are. So we're 808 and 905, which gets us about five centimeters of depth of penetration which gets us into the orthopedic tissues. It's pulsed uh, up to 1,000 to 1,500 times a second, so it doesn't generate heat energy. Again, super important. It's the only class four laser, which means that's just the power of the wattage that does not generate heat energy. So you can even laser over top of a total knee and not worry about the metal getting hot. There's no concern for you know, blistering or complications. And, and so I was like, you know, I love this. This really fits well into into my philosophy of trying to avoid opioids and seek out different treatment options. And so I opened up my own center. I bought three lasers. And the laser manufacturer came to me and said, this really looks good. We, we really like this idea. And I said, all right, you guys want to partner? And we decided that we're going to open up and start a franchise, a national franchise process. And that's where we are now. And we, we exclusively got the rights to the MLS M8 laser, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the best technology in laser. And the only way you can get one is if you sign up for an ortho laser franchise. We have five that are operational around the country. We have three more that are opening in the next six to eight weeks. And basically, post-pandemic, post it's lighting up. We get people from all over the country that are reaching out to us now who recognize that alternative treatment options – and it's also, you know, relatively inexpensive compared to a lot of, of, of alternative options out there. For for seven hundred bucks, you get ten treatments, uh, and your pain can have you can have indefinite pain relief depending on on the body and where the process is. So, it's reasonably affordable for a patient. Um, it's actually a revenue a revenue generator for physicians, which in this day and age they've seen significant reductions in revenue. So, the orthopedic surgeons are excited about the concept that you can heal someone. Uh, and and also be able to to generate additional revenue. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been busy, uh, you know, traveling around, making sure these centers are opening, and getting getting a lot of very positive results. Walk me through the uh, the COVID angle on this product. Yeah, so you know, th this is a real great example of how laser really works. Okay, people say to me all the time, "It's hocus pocus. What is this? You know, how does it work?" Well, it works at the cellular level. And, and the way it works is it increases mitochondrial production of ATP as well as these ATP binding proteins. It hypermetabolizes, hypermetabolizes the cell. And when that happens, it draws in blood flow to the area. Uh, it, and there's like about four or five different things that happen. But at the end of the day, it creates these proteins that then block the cascade of the cytokine storm that you can see, for example, in, in, um, in COVID disease. So Forgetting about the cytokine storm, if you roll your ankle and your ankle is hugely swollen and it's filled with blood and, you know, and, and you stick that under a laser within four treatments, the acute inflammation evaporates 100% of the time. It works beautifully. And so that was my idea. I was like, well, look, if, we, if, we're, if we're working really well on acute inflammation and on MSK fashion, what if, we, what if we lasered the lung fields and then we could affect the acute inflammation of COVID? And so I called the people in Florence and they were like, yeah, you know, this is a good idea. We've never really done it before. These are the, this is the dose that you may want to do. And I go to my IRB at the, at the hospital and I say, I want to bring my laser and I'm going to donate the laser and I want to set up a study. They're like, well, we don't really know much about laser. We're going to need some guidance from the FDA. So I said, okay, I'll just, I'll, let me just pick up the phone and call the FDA, right? I'm sure they'll call me back. You know, it's the FDA. What's the big deal? <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
<laughs> right? Well, guess what? Six hours later, they called us back. It was unbelievable. They, hands down to the FDA, you know, they were, they were all working from home, working overtime, trying to sort of, you know, fast track things that might be able to help in the crisis. And sure enough, over about six days, we sent them all the specs on the laser. They knew of the laser because it's FDA cleared. It wasn't like it, it hadn't been through the process. They just needed to give us the idea that we could use it in a different indication. And six days later, I got a, a note that said that we were cleared for an FDA non-significant risk device. I go back to my IRB. They approve it. And then, like, okay, let's go in and let's start lasering some people. But I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to I'm like, I'm, a, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. What, what's the dose I'm supposed to use over the lungs, right? You know? So so I open up the Google machine, and uh, I start Googling in the middle of the night. I'm like, what am I going to do? And I'm Googling COVID and pneumonitis and this, that, and the other. And the craziest thing, there's this there's this MD PhD, Sohila Makmali, who's Iranian born and trained, and also trained in, in Russia for laser, who has a laser center in Canada, and she's done laser studies on lungs. She's done asthma patients and COPD patients, and so I just DM'd her in the middle of the night, and she got back to me the next day. I sent her all the parameters of our laser. And she came back and she said, this is what you need to do. And I, I pop in the buttons, I'm boom, 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 pop it up. I'm like, oh, yep, that's the number that she said we should use. And I'm like, okay, I guess we got the dosage. And uh, so then we go into the hospital and we start signing patients up. And it's pretty amazing. It worked. And, you know, we only did 10 patients. It was a limited study. Um, just because, just We were running out of patients at the time anyway, because COVID was sort of dovetailing downwards uh, at the time. And of the five patients that we treated, all of them uh, went home the day after their treatment. They get four treatments, one treatment a day for four days. And, uh, and, and basically, the day after their final treatment, they all went home. They all had chest x-rays that were improved. Their oxygenation was significantly improved, and their inflammatory markers were improved. Unfortunately, the five patients in the control group, three went to the ICU, intubated, two died, one is still in rehab, and the other two went home with oxygen. It's a very small study, I'm the first to admit. But what we're doing right now is the case report, two case reports are are being uh, reviewed right now, peer review. And then the larger 10 patient uh, study, we're, we're just about ready to finish that and get it published as well. Our end game here, Kevin, is we want someone either in the US or around the world who's a larger academic institution to pick up this study and run with it. I mean. You know, you, you hear all these stories about all these medications and this, that, and the other. This is laser light energy. They lie on their stomach. There's no medications. There's no toxicity. It's just laser for 14 minutes on each lung. And and I am more than ever convinced that it can work to help to relieve the symptoms of COVID pneumonitis. I read an article. This, this conversation is a little serendipitous. I read an article just yesterday and the premise of the whole article was that nobody has ever died from COVID-19. What they are dying from is a cytokine storm. Yes. Um, so that is, uh, that's fascinating that you brought that up. South Carolina, as I found out this morning, where I live, is the highest trending spot in the world right now. So uh, we could do a study <laughs> right here. Well, we'll fire, up the, we'll fire up the lasers, brother. I mean, you know, it's just... It's so remarkable that, you know, that people just don't know the technology. And, and that's a whole nother conversation. I don't know if you read my piece on innovation for, for Ira Kirschenbaum's uh, um, new journal. But, you know, people are scared to try new things. They haven't been taught it. They don't know anything about it. And so if that's the case and they just assume that it doesn't work and because just because you're saying it, where's the level one evidence? You know, where's the randomized controlled trials? And I'm the first to admit the clinical trials are lagging. It's not because laser doesn't work. It's because there are many different types of laser, and you got to make sure that you're treating apples and apples. But the basic science of laser uh, technology and the ability for a laser to block the cytokine storm, that has been studied. And it has been done you know, under the microscope. You can assay ATP. You can assay you know, interleukin-6 or interleukin-1-beta. You can determine how much of that stuff is there. And when you laser someone, you can then measure it. So... Uh, anyone that doesn't believe that it works from the basic science level, you know, we're more than happy to sit down and have that conversation. So how does uh, my listeners learn more about this and learn more about the franchise model and and what you're doing on that product? 
Uh, we appreciate that. So you know, the best place to go is just to www.ortholaserwithaz.com, ortholaserwithaz.com. And our website's set up right now both for physicians that are interested as well as for patients as well. Uh, and so there's a way to just sort of jump on board, and then we're more than happy to contact uh, who's available and speak to anyone that's interested in, in, in getting more information about our laser. And, you know, I think the best way that we like to describe it is that we're not selling lasers, we're, we're selling a franchise of business. And so that business is all set up. We find you the real estate. We find, you know, our real estate broker goes in, finds you three or four sites that are accommodating to what you're looking for. We train all of your laser technicians. We provide you the software that's required. We provide you the lasers. We provide you the computers. We provide you the build out uh, so that every ortho laser looks the same. So, you know, as orthopedic surgeons, we want you to do an orthopedic surgery and, and we want to minimize the time and energy that's required on your end to run a business. Great stuff. Rapid fire knee questions. Three things. Uh, number one, PRP. I have clinics here in Myrtle Beach that promise uh, PRP will keep you from getting a knee replacement. I've, I've heard everything on that uh, scope. Tell me if there's, is there room in the middle for this? Do you think it's a hero or a zero or, or somewhere in between? I think it's somewhere in between. I think I pretty much followed Brian Cole's study out of Rush, uh, where he did leukocyte poor PRP, three injections over a period of time. And I think what people have to recognize with PRP is that PRP is not healing or, or making your arthritis go away. Uh, what PRP is doing is the same thing that a cortisone shot does or a gel shot does or Iovera does, and that is it's helping with your pain. It will relieve your pain for a period of time, uh, and then for that reason, if you can afford it, PRP is a reasonable option. The good news is that PRP is much less expensive than it used to be, but even in my office, it's 500 bucks an injection. We do three injections. Uh, we follow Brian Cole's process, and it's $1,500 out-of-pocket cost, and I don't see that that's going to be covered by insurance anytime soon as well. So, But I definitely think PRP has a role uh, for, for knee osteoarthritis as long as everybody understands that you're not curing arthritis, you're just making the pain better. Any room for unis in your practice? Well, yeah, I think unique compartmental knee replacement has a definite role. And I think what we do, which is really smart in my practice, is that especially for low volume procedures such as that, we identify one practitioner within our office that's going to do them, let them be an expert, and they're the ones that do it. Does it? So my partner, Dr. Dave Perbilla, does that. Although I will do patellofemoral replacements, I just have a long history of patellofemoral um, uh, uh, training, and so I'm comfortable with that. But I, I think unique compartmental knee replacements a great operation, uh, done correctly uh, for the right indications. Any, any advice on PFJs? I know some guys have had some spotty results with that procedure, and uh, any any tricks to to optimizing patient outcome on that procedure? Yeah, I think you really have to consider a tibial tubical osteotomy for most patients. Take a look at your TT, uh, your TG distances. Make sure most of the time there's some sort of a malalignment issue that's associated with these patients that creates this uh, patellofemoral issue. The other thing that a lot of patients will have that have the patellofemoral arthritis is they'll wind up having a patella alta. Uh, and so what happens is then that the, the patella won't track directly onto the component, but then it travels further up onto the trochlea. So I would say to you, if you're going to be a, become a patellofemoral arthroplasty you know, specialist, really take your time to understand the morphology of the patellofemoral joint. It is, it's a difficult joint, but make sure that you're looking carefully at all of your alignment issues. Really good stuff. You know, I was just looking at all the things you've got your hands in and, and all the things you've accomplished over your career. Uh, congrats, by the way, on the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland induction. Yeah, what's that was your, special. Uh, what's, your, what's your proudest moment so far? My proudest moment in clinical practice? Yeah. Oh, my God, that's a tough question. Uh, I would say... Um, I would say being inducted into the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland was a really profound moment for me. Uh, it was a culmination of my opioid-sparing uh, orthopedic surgical philosophy. That's why I was invited to Dublin, Ireland uh, in the first place and have been around the world sort of lecturing on this at this point now. And it's a special place when you're sitting in, in, in Dublin in that, in that hall and you look up and you see some of the names of, of these legendary medical doctors that have been uh, incorporated to, into that society. So uh, that was a, a really very special moment for me. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, anything you like to do outside the OR? Any passions uh, when you leave the hospital that uh, really got your attention? 
Oh yeah, I'm a bad golfer. I, I always tell everybody that the, look, the number one thing you should do before having surgery is go check out the handicap of your surgeon. Okay, if the handicap of your surgeon, if they're a scratch golfer, go find another surgeon. Unless it's Paul Favorito, uh, he's the only one that plays the role in that because they're spending way too much time on the golf course. So find yourself a 14 handicap surgeon who's doing good work in the operating room, and you'll be good. And my other great passion is my Peloton hashtag Follow the Fro is my. Uh, is my handle. Anybody that's out there, come on a ride with me. I absolutely love it. I'm on the bike basically every morning prior to surgery. I sort of, I take like the Tom Brady approach. You know, I run through the surgeries every morning before we go out and I really enjoy that. And then obviously all about my family. Well, while we're in your house, we got to talk about your master closet. You've done a phenomenal job rebranding your master closet uh, into a podcast studio. And for my uh, listeners, it is the Ortho Show with Scott Sigmund, and I believe you're on all the platforms out there on your podcast. I'm a subscriber. I think you're you're a natural at it. You do uh, you do great work, and I love your line about orthopedic characters because <laughs> uh, that is so true. There's so many of them out there. Uh, what inspired you to get into this medium, and uh, any any exciting plans on the the future uh, for the future of this? I, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I really love the podcasting, Kevin. I know that you, you have you have a great passion for it too, and you, you're doing a, a remarkable job. And I think it's just, I, I think I'm a people person. I really enjoy people. Most importantly, is I, I really enjoy stories. Uh, I've always been an enter- entertainer. I, I think that you have to be able to have fun. I enjoy, you know, laughing and, and hearing these these really great stories from from people that are different than me, but you know, still the same. And so we're we're focused on the Ortho Show really within the orthopedic space. And, and I, that's where we are for now. Uh, it's certainly possible that we may branch out. Um, our followers are not just orthopedic surgeons. Uh, obviously, just like yourself, Kevin, we have a lot of device people, everybody in the periphery of the orthopedic space that, that also listen and follow to follow us as well. And, and so, you know, we might sort of you know, branch out a little bit more into, into some people on the periphery of orthopedics as we go, as we move forwards. But for now, it's just, it's fun, exciting. I mean, I, I, I do my research just like you do. I actually have a whiteboard, a huge whiteboard in my room in the in the master bedroom uh, uh, podcast studio. And uh, and and before every podcast, I, I do all my research. I spend a day learning about what the people are because I always want it to be, you know, you want it to be a softball. You want these people to feel really super comfortable. You want them to be able to tell their story and be passionate about it. And that's the messaging you know, that, that we try to get across. I always say levity, you know, and, and brevity as well. So, you know, the best podcasts are when it's interactions and people talking back and forth and the guest is fun and exciting and, and the host is good too. You know, like when we had Mike Redler on as a good friend, Mike, Mike and I, that was the Seinfeld episode, you know, really wasn't about anything, but we still had right. a lot of fun, <laughs> a lot of fun doing it. Just two guys just going back and forth. Sure. And who knows? Maybe, you know, I guess at one point or another, I'm going to have to grow out of the closet and, and maybe get a real studio. That's the probably the next big move to have someplace cool to sit down. Um, I don't. I don't think you can go out of there. That's your. That's your brand. I, <laughs> if you do get a studio, it's still going to have to have your shirts and your shoes right behind you. So. Oh, I, so is that is so funny. I'm like, I always joke around. I'm like, I should monetize my closet, right? I <laughs> get to like get my wife's Manolo Blahniks and put it behind me. Maybe maybe they'll endorse me or something. <laughs> I have a. I've talked to a lot of people that I know that follow you, and it's not due to any orthopedic content at all, but just solely on things fro related. Any hair care tips that you'd like to share with them? Oh my god, it's the funniest thing right now. I can tell you that I have committed to not cutting my hair until my laser study is published. Uh, so one of two things is going to happen: my wife's going to leave me, or the laser study is going to be published. But at this point, I actually have to resort to wearing a headband even in the office. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. My hair otherwise comes down into my eyes. So I pull it back. I slick it back over the top. I put some product in. And then instead of wearing the hair hair band across my forehead, I I roll it up into like a cigar and we pull it all the way back. So the hair is all the way out. And it's uh, it's a spectacle and it's one that I'm living with and I'm sticking with it. (laughs) Well, here's some free advice for you, doctor. When the uh, when the fro obtains uh, sentience and starts telling you to do things that might harm others, then it's uh, it's time for high and tight. Yeah, I think we're going to when we go high and tight. 
I think we're going to go Instagram live. If we're going to let the whole <laughs> world see it. <laughs> I had a barber friend of mine that used to do that for all the high, uh, the highway state troopers in uh, North Carolina. And he told me it was uh, high and tight <laughs> is an art form in and of itself. Um, I love it. So I've got, I've got reps that listen to this show and, uh, I was just curious, you know, you've worked with people on my side of the table uh, with a laser pointer in our hand. Do you have any uh, thoughts you'd like to share with them about what makes them good at what they do or what has uh, made them challenge you uh, over your career? Yeah, that's a a great question. You know, I'm going to lead in with, I don't know if everybody saw Ira Kirschenbaum's post on on reps on LinkedIn, but it got like 20,000 or 30,000 views. And I made a very simple comment. And probably that one comment has gotten more likes than any other comment I've made, which is you can keep your robots, but don't take my reps. And it's got like over 60, 60 likes. And, and I, and I really mean that. I mean, not that I'm a, 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 I don't have any issue with robots. If people want to use them, they use them. But the rep is such an important and vital person in the operating room for you know patient safety, efficiency. You just never know who the surgical tech is going to be. And having someone in the room that understands the equipment, and, and if I was going to give advice, you know, to, to reps that are listening, you know, not just your equipment, know all the equipment in the room. And, and so that when, when there's a problem or an issue with a pump or somebody doesn't have an anchor, know where your competitive anchor, anchors are too, especially if they're not there. Little things like that go such a long way when you're, you're there to help, not just for your own personal gain, but for the benefit of the patient. Uh, you know, and I, I adore my reps. I mean, they, they've become friends of mine. We golf together. We, we, you know, this is, I see them a lot. They're, they're with me routinely, you know, three, four times a week we're seeing each other. And so, you know, making a relationship, a meaningful relationship with your surgeon is a good thing. And, and that helps to sort of build that relationship. And, and I think that, uh, it's trying times right now, uh, with your ability to communicate to your doctors, but, and the second, on the, on the other hand, I would say that most of us now are, are much more comfortable because we are back out. You know, we all stuck around the house for eight weeks. We weren't doing anything. And, and people are just more amenable at this point to, to getting things done. And I found that even some of the doctors that, that weren't as favorable to reps are much more so now. So it's a good time, you know, reinvent yourself. You know, if everybody listened to, uh, to um, my podcast, uh, with Joe Mullings, you know, it was an opportunity to sort of change yourself, come out of this podcast. We're not going back. It's not going to be the same. It will never be the same. Uh, we're all going to do things differently, not just within medicine, but within our social lives and travel and personal. And so just get adjusted to that. And, uh, you know, I really respect you guys for the hard work that you do. And uh, you are welcome in my operating room anytime. Great counsel, doctor. Great counsel. Uh, you know, you really are and, you know, we throw this phrase around a lot, and sometimes it gets a little meaningless, but you really are a social media influencer uh, and a real innovator in our space. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day today to share your story with us, and I look forward to following the fro, sir. Well, you know something, Kevin? I uh, I really I, I can't tell you how much that means to me. You know, I I go to these conferences, which I hope we're going to get back to again soon. You know, we all miss miss being around each other. Hopefully the vaccine will be out shortly. But, you know, it's just yeah. the funniest thing when I walk through and somebody will tap me on the shoulder and they'll just be like, hey, doc, I just really want to appreciate, you know, say thank you for all you're doing in the opioid sparing world and stuff. And, you know, and I follow the fro and it, it really, you know, it was a joke at first. It was just a thing. But, you know, to the, to the orthopedic surgeons or anyone out there that's listening, that's listening, that's trying to establish yourself as a brand. Make a brand, you know, and stick with it. And and if you do, uh, it, it becomes reality. It just becomes a part of who you are. And social media is very important to me, and I'm very passionate about it. And I do it all myself. I don't have, I don't have anybody pushing the buttons for me. I mean, when I make a post, I make a post, and it's something that comes from my heart. And I think that's also really important if if you want to get into this space is to comment, to understand, and use your own words to express what you're trying to say. That is such good advice to surgeons out there that are looking at this COVID-sized hole in the ground um, uh, within their practice and that that advice on branding themselves, branding their practice, and um, just engaging people in that space to say, here I am, and this is what I do, and this is why you should give me a call. That's, uh, That's important stuff these days. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, people and now that telemedicine's open, you know, people can call you from wherever, you know, if they're they, they like what you have to say. So it's not like you're just sitting in your own little zip code in your own little community hospital anymore. If you want to influence change, if you want to be able to take care of patients, regardless of where they're from, then you need to express how you're going to do that and get your message out. Great stuff. Thank you again, Dr. Sigmund. I am just uh, honored to get to speak to you, sir. Well, from one uh, podcaster to another, Kevin, you've done an amazing job. I really appreciate you having me on, and I really look forward to listening to your uh, show as well. You're doing an awesome job. What an awesome conversation. You are still valuable to a lot of surgeons. That should give you hope and optimism. What can we be doing creatively to build upon that, make us the person that is indispensable I loved his advice about knowing where everything is in central sterile so that when the surgeon needs uh, a Bennett or a Brown retractor, you know where that is. You know exactly where everything is, and you're almost like a, an employee at that hospital. That was really, really good stuff. So let's look at a quick recap. Not everything that goes wrong means that you did something wrong, right? It's not a cop-out. It's not an excuse. It's reality. It's reality. Sometimes you can do all the right things and it just doesn't go right. But make sure that you surround yourself with people that truly care about you and not their own careers that can speak life into you and words of wisdom in situations like that. Be ready to do a forensic analysis on just about everything, even things that go right. Look at it. Examine it. What could you have done better? I could just go on and on, but we all need that voice in our lives, whether it's a mastermind group, whether it's coaching, whether it's people on your team, just people that you trust. We need that now more than ever. So be excited. I mean, you really never know what might come your way this time tomorrow as a result of what you've been doing all this time. The plowing, the fertilizing, the watering, the scattering seed. You just never know. And that's why you get up every day in this job with a sense of hope and excitement and expectancy, because you really never know how things can turn around and go to the right side of things in just 12 hours. Good stuff. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. I really appreciate your voices of encouragement on DM and uh, email, the, the messages I've gotten. Very thankful for all of you. So I hope you all have an awesome week. Uh, let's be valuable. Let's be hopeful, be teachable, and most importantly, let's all be safe. Device Nation.